The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, y'all. I'm glad to be back with you uh, with a new guest. My guest today is John McInnes, uh, a friend and uh, a colleague. Uh, John is the CEO of Print Audit, CEO of Newstream, CEO of Payroll Credit, uh, sorry, Payroll by Credit Card, or in short, he's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, we first met about 14 years ago when we both joined uh, the executive committee, or in short, Tech, known also as Vistage. Uh, and when we both left Tech, uh, we kept in touch, both uh, sharing our family and businesses updates. Uh, before I jump into some questions and learning more about uh, John's journey to success and what uh, helped him get there, I want to share some of his bio with you. Um, John is a native Calgarian, which is very rare in Calgary. He, studies, he studied economics at the Bishop's University in Lennoxville, Quebec. Uh, later on, we'll learn how he financed his study. Uh, when John came back to Calgary, uh, uh, he worked for a while at, at commercial real estate brokerage, uh, known as uh, Knowlton at the time. That's right. Uh, and uh, from Knowlton, he kind of uh, joined a company called Manvest, which was a Calgary venture capital firm. At Manvest, John uh, traversed North America, and what he was doing, he was just assessing the suitability of a wide variety of businesses uh, for the equity investment by the company. Uh, this experience uh, probably proved uh, invaluable to Joan's own kind of uh, journey from that point on. In 1995, uh, Joan founded his first company, or that company at the time, uh, Bain Computing Solution. Uh, in 1999, Joan founded Print Audit, which is still the CEO of Print Audit today. Uh, Print Audit today has uh, offices in 10 countries and serving over 100,000 customers. Since uh, Print Audit inception, uh, Print Audit won dozens of product, company, and service awards, and John was selected as the 2010 Ernest & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, in 2008, John uh, accepted the MIT uh, Entrepreneur Master's Program, was accepted into the uh, MIT Entrepreneur Master's Program. Uh, which helped him, uh, once he finished that program, uh, better understand his business and encourage him to do much more on, with his business and his career. Over the past few years, 
Uh, he's invested, started, or purchased more companies. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's a serial entrepreneur, a true serial entrepreneur. Uh, in 2014, he started Payroll by Credit Card. Uh, payroll by Credit today uh, has grown to revenues of over $100 million. In 2016, uh, John purchased Neostream, uh, which is a Calgary uh, premier oil and gas uh, document management software company. John is a member of several professional associations, uh, to mention two, uh, EO, an Entrepreneur Organization, and Young Presidents Organization. John served on the board of EO, and he was the president for the year 2012. Uh, John is involved in several community organizations, and his passion today, since 2012, is to advise small companies uh, via a year program through the EO Accelerator Program, how to start their businesses. Uh, John is a proud family man uh, with his lovely wife, Dawn, and his 12-year-old son, Bain. Good morning, John. Morning, David. So, you know, most of our guests uh, and most of people I meet in Calgary were not born in Calgary. So you are a very rare find. You were born here and raised here. So tell us, how is it to be a, Calgary, a true Calgarian? I saw this question yesterday. You sent me some of the questions, and I was thinking, well, I grew up here. It's one of those uh, one of those things that just is. But uh, certainly, most of the people that you meet in Calgary are from somewhere else, and that's because the uh, oil and gas industry here has been so successful, and people come from all over the world. Uh, but the people that grew up here, we try and stay to ourselves and keep away from all the foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> so what is unique about you guys, the natives? <laughs> uh, well, we've got a secret enclave somewhere in the southwest of Calgary uh, where we meet fortnightly to discuss the future of Canada and its finances. Um, uh, I, I guess there's nothing really unique except for growing up here was it, it is a wonderful city to be from. Uh, I would say my childhood was ideal. Uh, no, lot, not a lot of drama. Uh, driving, riding our bikes all over all over the neighborhoods we grew up in. It was just a it's just a really great place to be from. And every weekend in the mountains for almost my entire life. So one of my questions that I always ask is how. Growing up, what kind of kid were you? And you just mentioned uh, not a lot of drama. So if I ask your siblings and your father, were you a drama queen or a drama king at that time? Uh, well, Growing up as a kid? Before my transformation in, from drama queen to king. Uh, <laughs> no, I would say that uh, I, I was certainly... Uh, in trouble a lot when I was a kid, but not to the degree that I was in jail or or uh, stabbing the local kids. I just was excitable and always always out. But really, for me and probably all of my friends here, we lived on our bikes. We rode our bikes everywhere and um, and just loved the summers and winters here. And um, today, Calgary is over uh, one and a quarter million people. Right. Uh, you've seen some changes over the years. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you feel about Calgary today? What do you like? What do you don't like? What, what kind of good memories you have that maybe if we wouldn't change, you'll still want it to be the same as, uh, what, 30 years ago? Um, that's a great question. I, 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 I really like how Calgary's grown up. 
when I was in high school, I went to high school in Ontario, boarding school in Ontario, and I remember coming back two or three times a year, and every time I'd get off the plane and my parents would drive me home, I remember looking out the window and seeing how much the city had changed. New building here, uh, new hospital there. I, I think that Calgary has grown into one of the coolest cities that I've been to in the world. It, it's a beautiful city, and as it grows, we get lots more. We've got fantastic restaurants here. Uh, there's so much to do here. There's lots of theater. There's uh, lots of entertainment. And then, as I said, having the mountains an hour from the doorway is a fabulous way to um, live, uh, I think, anywhere in the world. And don't forget Stampede. And Stampede. Stampede is... Uh, it's coming. My friend calls it Christmas in July. It's uh, it, For Calgarians, it's... Uh, for most Calgary, Calgarians, it's our favorite time of year. Um, I think that uh, Calgary became known kind of uh, globally in 88 uh, when uh, Calgary hosted the uh, Winter Olympics. Um, and you were 18 at the time. That's right. Uh, what do you remember from the Olympics? Well, I was away at boarding school, as I said, and what I remember most about the Olympics is the, my parents pulling me out of school for the 10 days that it was here. Uh, so I really got to do everything. My, my father owned a fairly large law firm in Calgary, and they had sponsored and had tickets to a lot of events. So I got 10 days off of school while all my friends were still in school, and I got to see just about every major event while it was here. It was a fabulous time. The other thing that I really remember when I started thinking about it is the entire Olympic was run by volunteers, and it might be the only profitable Olympics ever, uh, but it was it was so well done, and it just made me proud to be from Calgary. You know, uh, going back, I mean, coming to our present time, Calgary is now debating whether we want to host the 2026. What's your opinion about it? As a, as a citizen, as someone who was here in 88, someone who was born here, someone who's seen the city grow, what's your opinion about whether we should host the 2026 or not? I think we could pull it off. I think we could pull it off as well as we did the first time in 1988. Um, I I know that it would be, again, a volunteer Olympics and that the whole city would come out. And I think that it would showcase Calgary as a wonderful city again. It's, it's interesting about the city whenever you see top 10 rankings of any sort of uh, measure around the world. Calgary is usually on that top 10 ranking. And I think it would show well. Uh, Moving on in your life uh, to uh, university, uh, you went to university in Quebec, right? That's right. And uh, so when did you graduate? I didn't graduate from university. So I I was running. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You didn't graduate. I didn't graduate. So I went for three days. Tanya Eklund, my guest last week, went for two and a half years. What's your record? I think I was there for three, but. Uh, you went so far. I, <laughs> I, I could have, but I'm pretty sure I only went to two classes over the three years. Uh, I was because it's so, a. I went to an all-boys boarding school before university, so one of the great things about university was there were girls there. So uh, <laughs> for me, that was a, uh, a a wonderful change, and I pretty quickly started running a uh, painting and window washing business in university. 
and had a couple of other ways to make my own money. Uh, so in between going out every night, I was also running businesses. So there wasn't a lot of time for university, but uh, I, I had a great time there. Well, that was my next question. You know, yesterday, yesterday was the first day of spring and my wife usually uh, asks for window washing and I thought maybe we can have a deal here, but I guess you sold that portion of your life? I could teach you anytime, <laughs> Dave. I think getting you up on a ladder to clean one of your windows or maybe paint one of your sashes would be hilarious. <laughs> Uh, not going to happen. I can guarantee you that. So you move back to Calgary after three years. Yeah. And you get into a commercial real estate. And at that time in Calgary, Knowlton was the big house. Yeah. Um, and if I remember right, uh, the history of Knowlton, usually they hired only guys who graduated. Yeah. So how much did it cost you to get a job with them? I think it's more how much I cost my dad. So um, I uh, I guess where I was lucky is that when I was younger, I had a paper route in the same neighborhood that Gerald Knowlton, the fellow that owned the owned the uh, brokerage or the commercial real estate firm. So I delivered his paper to him for years. So he knew who I was, um, and he also knew my parents pretty well. But I had actually. Uh, through a friend coming out of university, I had gotten a job at Club Med to keep teach kayaking, and uh, my father felt that that might be the end of my life, <laughs> and so he said, "Well, just go to this one interview." Little did I know that he he had uh, spoken to Gerald, and I went in for the interview. I don't think they wouldn't have hired me if I wasn't at least somewhat intelligent, but uh, it, I was the first person to ever be hired at Knowlton without a university degree. So what was wrong with real estate, with commercial real estate? Why did you leave? Uh, nothing. It was, a, it was a tough job. I was out for dinner with one of my customers last night and joking about how I had been in every building in downtown Calgary, uh, walked most of the floors. My job as an assistant was to walk the floors and try to convince people to leave that building to go to another one. So naturally, the building security was constantly after me, and I knew every way I could get in and out of buildings without getting caught. So that was fun, but it was a tough job. Really, what moved me was I got uh, through another fellow that was at Knowlton, Kirk Purdy. He started this venture capital firm for a fellow here in town and invited me to come along with him. And when he did that, I thought that uh, that was way closer to my interest was venture capital. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, I was a terrible venture capitalist because every idea that came in the door I thought was a great one. (laughs) And uh, so I was much better on the other side of the table being the entrepreneur than the venture capitalist. But um, so maybe you had you were a, kind of a terrible decision maker as a venture capitalist to, to invest in all the companies, but at that kind of uh, job or as an analyst for venture capital, what do you think today, um, in, in hindsight, looking back, what kind of uh, foundation did it give you in starting your own companies and, and investing later? Um, if you look back at the time as being an analyst for someone else. I think there were a few things. The fellow that owned the company, I I learned a ton from him about business and uh, people, really. A a lot of my conversations with him when we'd be in his car or sitting in his office were about people. Um, And and going back to my painting business just quickly as well, I found that, uh, and, and this might be a common theme, at the bottom of every page of the, I bought a franchise for uh, my painting company at the bottom of every page of their very, very thick manual was a saying that said, 
take good care of your employees and they'll take good care of you. I found that also in the venture capital company when we were looking at other, at some of the companies that we're buying or getting involved with, uh, there were just such different views on the people in the companies and what it came down to and what I really learned is that I love the people part uh, where a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, they they dread it. Uh, but I, I, I really do love that uh, my values and my vision, I can find the people that are aligned that way. And so I think probably that was the number one thing I've learned from the venture capital company is how to run a good business and what they look like and really they look like who are the people you're working with. So in 1995, you decide to start your uh, first true company, not a franchise uh, that you bought, not uh, working for someone else, but start uh, being computing solutions. That's right. Um, so what led to kind of moving into the IT from real estate, venture capitalists, now you're in IT? Well, uh, one of the interesting things about the venture capital company is I was the youngest guy there. And by default, they figured the young guys all knew about uh, IT. And uh, the fellow who owned the firm, he was he had a great vision that all of the companies that they purchased should be on a single platform that was called Lotus Notes. By default, I was the guy that had to become the Lotus Notes expert. And uh, so as well as as helping to analyze vi- businesses, my job really became uh, helping to build that platform. And I saw a lot of opportunity in that platform. And because I was starting to become an expert and knew some experts, it was a pretty easy thing to start a Lotus Notes based company. And uh, so that's that's what I did and uh, left. So I left I left Manvest to build that company. And it actually it grew very quickly. Most of the clients when I started off were Manvest investments. So that was great. And when you started uh, your first company, uh, Bain uh, uh, Computing Solution, did you have mission, vision, structure, or it was just, you know, an Alim, let's start a company and we'll take it from there? Yeah, so the first one was, the first big one that I built was uh, the structure came, I started to learn the structure after uh, mission, vision, values, which is what I spend a lot of time with, with people that I'm helping today. Uh, didn't really have that piece. It, it was a good company. It grew fairly rapidly, a lot of customers, but it didn't have that piece. The other thing about that company is it was a service-based company, so we only made money off of the hours that we worked. And um, uh, what I thought was interesting or what I wanted to do was make money while I was sleeping. So uh, <laughs> my dad used to say, I don't want to own anything that eats while I'm sleeping. He was a lawyer, and so my sister never had horses. I see. Well, it looks uh, that uh, we're coming into a commercial break. Uh, make sure to open a new tab and check our social media. We're just with John's permission. We're going to share with you some of uh, Print Audit uh, Office culture pictures, uh, and we will meet you on the other side of the commercials. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with our guest, John McInnes. Uh John, you know, um, we talked about your history so far. Um, let's get kind of to today. Um, so you started Print Audit in 99. Right. And I, I think that I, I'm not an IT guy, as you know me very well. Uh, but the most common story we hear about IT, oh, it all started in my garage. Where did yours start? I would say my basement. Oh, okay. So that's different. So it's pretty close. <laughs> uh, the garage would have been pretty cold, uh, but uh, but we really did start in the basement. We when we were selling our software packages and building our software packages, I would shrink wrap them in the oven. My uh, girlfriend at the time, now my beautiful wife Dawn, she would come home to find her her oven mitts all burned up because I had <laughs> left something in or I didn't do it right. But uh, And at, once we moved past the oven, we would use all of her blow dryers to shrink wrap the packages, <laughs> and eventually those would blow out too. So um, that, was, that was where we started was the basement. How many employees did you have at the time? We're... I'm just trying to think about what the, 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 at that time it would have been me and uh, I started with a partner early on and so it would have been me and him and maybe somebody helping out and we just added and added and added more people as we as we went and as it became more successful. So you had a big basement. <laughs> My basement. So we moved from one place to another, built out the, when we bought our house, uh, another house, we built out the basement as an office uh, and the basement paid for the rent. Because I had so, I had sold all my clients from Bain Computing Solutions to start 
print audit and uh, that wasn't it didn't turn out to be nearly as much money as I was hoping so being in the basement and having free rent for a couple of years was pretty handy so one of the challenges that uh, entrepreneurs have uh, and, and in every industry but so uh, I think in IT as well is uh, financing startups how did you finance uh, the beginning of print audit before you were able to kind of stand on your financial feet there's several ways that we did it, but it is uh, truly called bootstrapping. Uh, bootstrapping is essentially doing, building a company with no money whatsoever. Uh, we, I went out to some of my friends, raised a little bit of money. I think altogether we raised about $75,000 to start off, which uh, at that time I thought was a fairly enormous amount of money, but my friends uh, put in money, my parents put in money. Again, it wasn't really enough. The Canadian government, as we scrambled, has a lot of startup grants for IT companies and they'll and they'll cover a lot of the development of starting up. So I remember often sitting on the front on the front step waiting for the mailman to come so I could pay my my main developer and he'll think it's funny too. He uh, Paul Hemrick uh, used to give him his check and say you may not want to cash that for a couple of days. <laughs> and uh, he's actually the second largest shareholder in Print Audit now because there were a few times where he just converted his checks into shares, which was very nice of him because we weren't sure how to go. But I got to say, uh, all but maybe two years of the 16 years of print audit, my shareholders have received a dividend check. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it leads me to my next question. You know, about a month ago, I saw a presentation at the Calgary Economic Development uh, meeting uh, from a very successful IT entrepreneur. And uh, one thing that really caught my eye was that the failing rate in the first year of IT companies is is enormous. It's like way over 50%. Um, how convinced were you that your idea, your company is going uh, to be successful? I think generally I don't do enough research when I start a company. So I go in with, with lots of blinders on. And uh, so I was pretty convinced that we would be successful within a year, uh, be writing checks for millions of dollars and and uh, smoking money, but uh, it's uh, it never did turn out that way. It was a long time to actually get the software to work, years, uh, and to get and to get a client base. Um, so, I, I guess the answer is, David, I'm I'm a I'm an optimist that maybe is blind. <laughs> I'm a blind optimist, but I love it. And you know, you kind of. Uh part of an organization, two organizations that have a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, would you say that that's a common thread about entrepreneurs being optimistic sometimes to being oblivious almost? It's, a, it's interesting. I think that entrepreneurs, yes, they're definitely optimistic. Uh, but people ask me often, what's the difference between an entrepreneur and somebody else? And I think it's just that we did it. Everybody's got a great idea. There isn't anybody out there that doesn't have a fabulous idea that they want to, that they'd like to start. Uh, but really the jumping and doing it is a big difference. And I think, I think in that way, entrepreneurs are optimistic, but I find that risk takers, they're not as risk. They're more risk averse out there, they really do think about what they're doing. They uh, uh, they'll jump forward on opportunity, but uh, I, I think that entrepreneurs are very similar to other people, other than that they have taken that risk and they have maybe more tolerance for downside. Uh, before I, I kind of go forward with with the growth that comp that company had, um, 
in hindsight, we're looking back now to the first few years, uh, both pain computing and, and print audit, can you kind of focus on two or three mistakes that you know today you did and maybe your advice and you're being now a mentor to new entrepreneurs, your advice today to guys that want to start a company, well, don't do this because I did it and this is what I learned and this is what went wrong. I would say two major things, David. One is try not to have one big customer and this is not always possible for entrepreneurs when they're getting started. Uh, Print Audit had one big customer and it it caused us to almost lose the company about six years ago and uh, as much as we tried we couldn't couldn't get around that but uh, you need to spread out your customer base as much as you possibly can. So that that would be one of my biggest mistakes and one of the things that I, I don't do going forward with companies. Um, one of the other things that I've found that uh, uh, I've done, made a mistake with in the past is not keeping things simple. So price lists being unbelievably complicated, uh, processes getting more and more complicated, layered and layered on top until you can't get out from underneath them. Uh, Often the simplest way is the best way to move forward with just about any decision. Try and keep it simple. And so maybe the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. Those are it. And and adding a third, you asked for only two. But the third is that whole mission, vision, values, getting, figuring out who you are before you bring on people that you're going to work with. So when did you do the mission, vision for print audit? Um, Before or after the crisis? (laughs) <laughs> it was way before, uh, and without it, we would not have survived. There's no doubt. And that's a very in- interesting point. So um, please elaborate. So you had your mission, vision. How long after you started the company? I would say. So I got into tech pretty much right away. So where you and I met, I got into tech right away. And this is where I started to learn about the structure of of good businesses, and. Um, and how a business should be run. And it was the first time I really ran into this mission, vision, value thing. So in my late late 20s, early 30s, I started to understand it. And I went and did the exercise with some of the people at work. It didn't, I didn't understand exactly what I was doing before, but now I understand that having a, a strong mission and strong values really isn't as, as much of a fluffy thing as a lot of people think about, it allows the people that you bring onto your team to make decisions without you. So it gives you a freedom that you know, even if it's even if something goes wrong, it's going to be within that value structure. And so you can allow people to make almost unlimited decisions because they're going to do it within the value. So they're not going to... Um, do something without integrity. They're not going to do something without uh, without some sort of fun. They're just not going to build those build those decisions that are wrong. So, so today, as a mentor, you recommend, you recommend uh, new entrepreneurs to have their mission, vision, value as they start. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, um, I remember the time that uh, you went through a crisis with Print Audit. Uh, we were both part of uh, tech, known also as Vistage in the U.S. and in the world, and. Um, and you mentioned that you know having one customer is or one big customer that controls basically controls you. Yeah. Um, how did you manage with this crisis when you almost lost print audit? What we did 
Well, uh, it's, a, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an in depth story, but I'll try and get through it quickly. In 2011, our large customer uh, had bought another company. They weren't a competitor to us, but they uh, this large company enveloped everything that they were doing, and everybody moved around. Uh, and we went from hundred six six or seven hundred thousand, I think about six hundred thousand a month in revenue, very quickly down to sixty thousand dollars a month in revenue with this customer. Um, what worked for me is I was at a conference with some of my friends from EO, uh, entrepreneur organization, and I was I was really panicked. I thought that I was going to be calling my wife and saying we need to sell the house. Uh, I had all of my eggs in one basket with really one customer back then, and. What happened was at this conference, I started to hear about subscription models and started to understand that. I wasn't sure whether we were going to be able to make it past the the next few months, uh, but I did know how we could move forward by building a new model that would have been for a lot of customers instead of a single customer. And what happened with us is in December 2011, we ended up laying off more than half of our staff at Print Audit, which was really, really tough because these were friends. These were people that I brought on. Uh, fortunately for me, and I, I'm, I think, David, you actually took on some of those people uh, because I knew so many business people in Calgary and Calgary was booming so much. Each and every one of those people got hired by somebody else. So that was fantastic before I even let them go. Uh, so that was the community was very helpful there. And then in January 2012, just by a fluke, we had our biggest month ever at Print Audit. And so we had some money and we also had a bunch of other money that had come in and it allowed us to build a subscription program that was for office equipment dealers only. And five years later, we're bigger than we've ever been and we've got 700 customers instead of uh, 700 individual office equipment dealers and hundreds of thousands. They in turn have hundreds of thousands of other customers. So we're well diversified. Um, you know, when, when, when a company goes through such a crisis, one of the things is, yeah, we have the mission, vision, and value, which uh, helps people kind of stay focused. But also, I think a big part of it is leadership uh, and culture. So well, let's start first with the leadership. If I call today, and I know some of the people that work with you, and I know some people that worked with you. Yeah. So if I call them today and I ask them, what kind of a leader John is, what do you think they will say? I don't know. I would hope. You know, you just no. Don't I, be humble. I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure. I I think that most people think I'm a little bit crazy because one not, one of our not, core not values most, is fun. All, all, all not people most think people. all people think I'm a little bit crazy. Uh, my main core value is fun, and we laugh a lot at the office. But uh, I think decisive and clear vision would be. I think a clear path is a very important thing to me, and I would hope that uh, other people saw that they knew what the path was, no matter where, what day we were on at at work. How do you communicate this? Because you know, when we have a crisis, um, communication is the main tool for our to our employees, right? Um, and then when we get out of the crisis, many times we see that we drop the communication. We let the you know, life carries on, we're making money, everything is good, uh, people are calling us, they want to get hired by us. Um, what is your communication style? What is the communication within? And you have now 10 offices. Yeah. 
Um, we are very much into rhythm, into communication rhythms. And so we have a morning huddle every morning at 8 a.m. Uh, and we've got, uh, we've got in North America, we've got employees all over North America. So they come in via Hangouts, um, which is a Google, which is Google's version of Skype. We, it's 15 minutes in the morning that we get together every morning, everybody in the company, no matter what their time zone is. And then on Fridays, we have a team meeting where we get together and we talk about our goals for the week. We talk about, uh, we compliment each other. We uh, get the information out that needs to be out. Uh, this meeting, actually, you would think that a Friday meeting would be terrible, but by the end of it, we are all coming out with huge smiles on our faces. We laugh our heads off and um, it, it's that's how communication works with me but also there are no secrets so our financials i put up our financials as soon as i get them every month and i show people exactly where they where we are so there is no doubt in people's mind where we are on a monthly almost weekly basis with our financials every day we have key performance indicators that show exactly what we're what we're achieving what we're not achieving and what we're trying to achieve and all of those pieces are so embedded in the culture of print audit and and all of the companies in that i don't really have to be there for these things to happen it's just part of what goes on um I want to go back to something you said about a minute ago about the daily huddle. So you have 15 minutes, mm -hmm. and how many employees do you have today? Uh, there's 40 in North America. 40 in North America. In 15 minutes, 40 people cannot talk. So what is the structure of a daily huddle, and what's the value you and other employees get from it? Right. So the structure of the meeting is we do one good thing from yesterday. So we started off with a, something that's good. Uh, often what I love about one good thing from yesterday is it's, is it's uh, the people are talking about maybe what happened with their kids with basketball or something like that or something from good from work. And then the next thing is your priority for today. That's it. There is no discussion about it. And it'll get around to somebody and they'll read the KPIs for that day for that department. Uh, we typically can get around all 40 people in eight minutes. And then when you walk out of the room, that's when it really starts to happen is somebody will call you, hear the phones ring. Hey, I heard you're working on this today. I'm working on this. Let's make sure we do it together. And that's the communication piece that really does bring the, gel the entire office in the morning. So uh, a little bit of a confession. I tried to do the morning huddle here and I failed. So it was awkward to start with. How did you guys got over that hump of the awkwardness in the first few month of doing the daily huddle yeah it's one per 100 the uh the senior staff that have to be behind it you have to be there you have to be committed uh typically what i find when we implement it in new companies is it takes 90 to 120 days to make it disappear that awkwardness disappear and it does become a rhythm uh but uh it can't be done and the only way that i've ever seen it fail is if the whole senior staff isn't behind it and doing it every day and committing to be there every day they don't have to three years after they don't have to be there every day but those first 90 120 days that's where the commitment goes and when a new employee joins the company how do they kind of feel it's, it's a little bit kind of tough to get used to something like that to start with yeah i maybe what i what i and this is interesting about new employees when they come on uh there is a certain period of time and this is actually a great period of time for entrepreneurs to be able to look to see the world from outside eyes there's a certain period of time where people are in the company and they call you 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 guys you guys when they switch to we 
which happens again. It's about 30, 60 days. When they switch to we, they're, they're in. Yeah. Uh, but when they're you, you can get a vision from their eyes. When they come in, they'll tell, I ask, what do you think of this? How do you like it? Most, for the most part, they're fun, so they like it. But I'm not sure if they'd tell me otherwise. They might, <laughs> but they're supposed to. Uh, okay, we're getting closer to our uh, second commercial break. Uh, don't forget uh, to like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on uh, LinkedIn, and we'll be back uh, after the commercial uh, to wrap it up with our guest, John McInnes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Uh, we're back uh with John McInnes. And John, before uh, the break, I uh, we were kind of uh, touching about print audit. I have one or two more questions before we move forward. Um, today with, you know, uh, 10 countries, over 100,000 uh, customers, um, how do you do your annual strategic plan or annual business plan? Do you do a strategic plan that you update every year or every few years? How does the management of print audit kind of works today? We do a strategic plan every year. Actually, we have our hosting usually in your offices here, Dave. So that's great. Uh, I bring my senior executive together for two to three days of planning. And we use a system called scaling up, which used to be called mastering the Rockefeller habits. I learned it at my MIT course in Boston. And since then, we've used the some variation of it. Uh, and the plan is built we do a five-year plan and then we'll do yearly checkups 
and make our adjustments on the yearly checkups every year. We do a survey to all of our customers worldwide, and that really helps us. The survey we call Stop, Start, Continue. So what should print audit stop doing? What should print audit start doing? What should print audit continue doing? Which really lets them tell you about what your strengths and weaknesses are. And um, then the after the strategic session, we present the plan to all of the all of the managers in the organization and they build their plans to make sure that we're hitting our objectives and goals for the year. Um, and then it builds into a bunch of rhythmic meetings during the rest of the year to make sure that we're executing. I think strategic planning, the one thing that people do incorrectly, everybody's got great ideas, but execution if it's not built into the culture of your organization, it's not going to happen. So you look at the plan a year later and say, oh, yeah, we were going to do that. So I did that a few times, and then I built in execution into all of the organizations. Um, what's next for Print Audit? Well, we uh, we purchased a company called Neostream in Calgary, and we are going to uh, – Print Audit really is everything – printed documents, so documents coming out of machines, and Neostream is going to allow us and our customers to get into managing digital documents, and so we're excited about bringing a local Calgary company to um, customers all over the planet. Um, Thanks for bringing the Neostream uh, point up, because that's one of my questions here. Um, Isn't that amazing, Dave? Yes. Uh, <laughs> we segued into that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason I wanted to bring Neostream up is not about the company because I'm there as far as possible from IT. It's more about how you purchase the company. And where I'm going with this is uh, our mutual friend, Sean Holiday, uh, which was one of the owner or the major owner of uh, Neostream. Uh, you purchased a company from a friend. That's right. Um, which to me seems very tough, very hard uh, to kind of separate friendship from business. How did you guys deal with it? And, and I understand that Sean is still with you guys. Correct. Uh, so Sean still runs Neostream and he's uh, he's a fantastic entrepreneur, always has been. And he was in tech with us. He's been in EO with me. What I guess the answer to the question is that uh, we've always had a separation of business and friendship and uh, we've worked well together. And the good thing about Sean and I is because we've been in tech and EO together and uh, we've really learned about running businesses similarly. And one of the things that I've definitely learned in my in my venture capital days is when you're trying to bring two companies together, it, nothing matters but the culture and the integration of the people. And fortunately, the people at Sean's company were very similar to the people at Print Audit. And so our cultural integration, because they literally moved into our offices in December, we picked them up and moved them from downtown to our offices. And so the integration has been perfect. And that's just because Sean and I think very similarly. Um, so... You know, I asked you what's next for print audit. I, I think one of the questions that really kind of, kind of comes to mind is what's next for John? Because uh, I don't think that three or four companies for you to run is enough. I think you have more time available and probably you'll get bored in an hour. <laughs> well, thank you for thinking about my time, Dave. Um, 
Yeah, I, uh, maybe, I maybe Don doesn't share my, uh, my thinking. <laughs> your enthusiasm and, or, for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think my wife prefers that uh, I'm happy and busy, and um, and this is actually a good segue. I promised my son that I would say hi, Bane. Oh, on hi, the Bane. Radio because Bane is listening as well. Um, Wasn't he? Isn't he supposed to be in school now? I don't know if he's made it yet. He's probably on the bus on the way to school, so okay. he's listening to this. Um, yeah, so I I definitely will be starting and investing in and buying new businesses in the future, and we're and I'm constantly looking. Um, I've been extraordinarily lucky with my other company, Payroll by Credit Card, to find a uh, a president who again is has been a friend of mine forever. Um, he's one of the smartest, um, most amazing people that I've ever known, and he's now running. Uh, one of my other companies and he's doing a great job and I would like to eventually find that for print audit and that will probably be I'll start companies and then find great people to run them I see so what does it take to be a serial entrepreneur Uh, Lucky Charms Cheerios no Hmm. not that kind of cereal Um, I don't know so as I said when as we talked about with print audit when it was tanking I realized that I wasn't widely diversified and I did have more time one of the number one of the big things that I learned from that experience was I needed to be more diversified. And I needed to have more income and I needed to do more with my time. And so really that's maybe what people call serial entrepreneurship. For me, it's a diversification, but my love is starting. I love the start. I like being in the middle of it. I like thinking about how we're going to get a customer here, what they're going to like about this, what they're going to like about that, and actually selling it and trying it and then moving on and on and hiring the people to replace me all the way through. Uh, so I, I guess that's what it's like to be a serial entrepreneur. I just love new. <laughs> I see. Um do you, you do you have any mentors that you kind of consult with or uh, the EO and the YPO and being part of tech was good enough for you that you didn't need like mentors that you know have some you know gray hair and yeah. life and business experience so certainly tech EO and YPO have been immensely helpful to me for building the business I I, I can't my my EO forum um, have taken me and we've all worked through some tough times uh, pers- both personally and in business those have been excellent I do have a mentor a fellow named Glenn Street who owns a company here called the Street Characters he and I get together every month and he pushes me on my goals and ambitions and so that's that's been excellent for me um, but really my mentor is everybody I can talk to about I love talking about business and what they're doing, and I'm I'm fascinated by other businesses. So uh, I, I'm I'm pretty broad in the people that I talk to. You, I talk to you all the time about business and the way that you've built Barclay Street and Triumph and all of the businesses that you built. I'm fascinated by that, and I take little bits from all of those pieces and try and add them to my own brick wall. Um, you know, I have a question that I am going to ask, and I asked Tanya, and I'm going to ask every uh, guest is, so uh, we're talking about mentors. So if you had a chance to invite three people, you buy a table for four for lunch or dinner or even beer, yeah. um, whether dead or alive, who are the three people that you will invite for that lunch? So 
I read this yesterday and I was trying to think, okay, how do I be intellectual? How do I be cool on this? I've read hundreds of books. What should I do? <laughs> you can invite me. <laughs> so uh, you would be at one of the tables, Dave. <laughs> I'll be wagering. Really, really for me, I I truly, truly miss my parents. The times that I that we had at the dinner table together, the three of us or my sisters when they were around, um, I would give almost anything to have another meal and sit down with my parents. They were the most influential people in my life and they were the funnest, the best people and, and I miss them every day and so I would give it just about anything, as I said, to sit down with them again. So um, when we talk now about mentors and, and, and mentorship, um, one of the things that really jumped into my eyes in your bio is that you now took that role as becoming a mentor and uh, through EO or YPO. Um, so share with us a little bit, what do you do as a mentor and, and what kind of companies do you kind of, you know, today help? Yeah. Uh, so inside and outside of EO, uh, EO has a fantastic program called the Accelerator Program, and essentially they assign, uh, or that they don't assign, I volunteered, and you take uh, businesses that are 250000 and above in revenue, and they've got a, at least a couple of employees, and um, you work with them in a forum-type atmosphere to help them grow their businesses really to as quickly to a million dollars as we possibly can. Uh, it's a very structured program, and I get to take a bunch of my years of business, bring it to them, tell them about the structure, the huddles, the KPIs, the all the meetings, and those sorts of things, and Every meeting I learn just as much from them as they learn from me, but it is a fantastic program. I also, outside of EO, I do similar with other entrepreneurs. Um, I looked at a lot of different charities and places where I can give my time, and I've given my time in a bunch of different organizations, but really I think the biggest impact that I can have on the world is helping entrepreneurs to hire other people and to really create skills and jobs. Um, I asked you earlier, what are the two or three, um, you know, mistakes you made and you learned from? So now we're sitting here and uh, myself or Cassandra want to start a new company. What are the three positive advices that you can give us? Uh, People ask me all the time, how do I start a business? And I think the answer is just do it. You may not fail. You may not succeed. You also may not fail. So that's the good side of it. Uh, you may not succeed. The odds are highly against you. But if you do succeed, then you're going to be ultimately very happy with your choice in life, I think. Um, but the, the number one thing I would say to people about starting a business is it's not a business until you have people working with you. So make sure that you love working with people. And uh, if you love working with people and you can bring on, you learn how to bring on great people, you're going to just have a wonderful life because that's how mine is now. Are you enjoying being a mentor? I do. I I, I've, I've been doing the accelerator program for quite a while, and I, I like that hour or two hours that I get to spend with people that are just starting out and getting things going. It gives me it gives me a lot of jazz, and uh, so I, I I love doing that. And it's so amazing how people can make money. There's a million ways to do it, and these guys are figuring guys and girls are figuring out that million ways. Um, we're, we're getting very close to the end of our show, and um, there's one other thing that uh, really kind of caught my eye 
on your bio, um, you're invested with Village Brewery. Right. And you're a beer baron. That's right. My wife I is. I drink my a wife lot of I. beer. How do I become a beer baron? <laughs> you have to be invited to be a shareholder. Um, and I, I think they're probably closed, but I th- there's 50 shareholders that helped to raise up the village, as we call it. Uh, it was built by a fellow named Jim Button and a fabulous uh, crew of people that built this, this, uh, this brewery. And I got to tell you that it has been one of the funnest experiences being involved with the brewery there. As an organization for shareholders, they are the best shareholder uh, organization I've ever seen. They take care of us. They involve us in a bunch of decisions. We get to taste the beer before anybody else, and we actually get a little bit of input into what the beer is going to be like. But on the community side, these guys are unbelievable for what they do for the community of Calgary. And uh, now they're starting to expand throughout the rest of Alberta, so I'm excited for them. How do you get to be a beer baron? You got to drink a lot of beer. I mean, I think I qualify. Um, John, um, you know, once again, I want to thank you for being our guest, uh, sharing your successes and maybe not less important than your mistakes and, and how you learn from them. Um, you know, it's always nice to be to learn from other people and to get to know other people in, in depth. And I think we covered a lot today and I really appreciate that uh, you coming here and doing this. By the way, do you like to cook? I like to eat. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Which so, is good. So you should listen to our next uh, show next week. Uh, I think that everybody's in for a treat. Our guest next show uh, is going to be Chef Giuseppe De Gennaro, uh, owner of Chef of Cotto Italian Comfort Food. Uh, if you know uh, Giuseppe, he's a true Napolitano, and uh, with him, when he immigrated, he brought his true Napoli love and passion for Italic, uh, Italian classic food, which I share the same passion, but we're on the wrong side, but like you, I like to eat it. Uh, once again, um, follow our promos this week uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We will share some of uh, Giuseppe's uh, recipes, and uh, we will see you here, same time, uh, same place on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Cassandra Hennison, for helping and being a right, pers- right person to help me. And thanks you again. thank you again, John, for being our great uh, guest. Thanks, Dave. Good luck with the show. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.